We are talking once again with Job Parrish and Maria Tomchik, local writers and activists, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Yes, and Mike is coming from uh, a phone booth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in an the, 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 one, yes. the one remaining phone booth in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> All right, so jumping into this week's news, and uh, we talked last week about a lawsuit that was taking place regarding our former mayor. Yeah, um, this was something we discussed last week. There was a whistleblower lawsuit that the city of Seattle settled with two whistleblowers in the public records department who uh, sued the city when they were uh, basically harassed out of their jobs uh, under Mayor Durkin for um, uh, for being reluctant to go along with the cover-up that was uh, done of the text messages that are missing from the summer of 2020 during the George Floyd protests. You remember that Mayor Durkin, uh, then uh, Police Chief Vest, and several other leading officials um, mysteriously had their um, text deleted from that time around the decision-making for the abandonment of the East Precinct, which was publicly blamed on a site commander, but which nobody with, you know, two brain cells to rub together thought that Mayor Durkin and Chief Best wouldn't have been intimately involved in. It turns out they were, um, and the whistleblowers uh, exposed to that, and that there was an intentional cover-up to try and delete those texts so that uh, the mayor, who was then considering a run for re-election, wouldn't have to be accountable for that particular uh, decision. So um, uh, we found out this week what the terms of that settlement were. They were $2.3 million for the two whistleblowers, so they will be financially comfortable for a while. Um, although, you know, a million dollars doesn't go as far as it used to, but what the heck. But uh, the taxpayers will pay for uh, that cover-up. But the one thing that hasn't happened so far is that uh, nobody's been prosecuted for that cover-up, and it doesn't appear that they will be, uh, even though that is a blatant uh, violation of the Public Records Act for Washington State. But um, we... As an attorney, you would you would hope that Jenny Durkin would be familiar with the Public Records Act. Well, uh, what the whistleblowers first took their complaint to the Seattle Ethics and Election Commission, which is the agency mm -hmm. that any time you are onboarded as a city official, whether you are mm -hmm. a file clerk or the city mayor, you are told never, ever, ever delete text messages, never, ever, ever delete emails. Those are public records. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they were ignorant about what they were doing. That's why they were trying to cover it up because yeah. they knew it was illegal. So the question is, uh, is the King County attorney or the Washington State Attorney General or somebody, anybody going to prosecute these former public officials for their blatantly legal acts? Probably not. Yeah, it would be nice to uh, for the taxpayers to see if it's possible to recoup some of that some of that payout by uh, going after the folks who actually made the decisions to delete those messages. And we're talking uh, a conspiracy among the mayor, the chief of police, and some of the other top officials in the Durkin administration. Yes, and it, no, make no mistake, it was a conspiracy. That's a, it, mm -hmm. it, I think it needs, that in this case, definition. 
Yeah, in this case, it's an that the word conspiracy is an accurate description and not an exaggeration. Perhaps we can garnish their wages, (laughs) Um, which is why they left to (laughs) go. Yeah, maybe maybe we can reveal their home addresses. I hear Mayor Durkin is a little touchy about that. Yeah, uh just just ask Swan, who would face a recall election over that issue. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on then, the uh, King County Regional Homelessness Authority uh, is pursuing, uh, trying to wrap up contracts. Well, yeah, once again, this year, just like last year, it's late in approving contracts for service providers. I'm I'm flashing on on Alice in Wonderland. It's late. It's late. It's late. Mm -hmm. They always are. Yeah. Now, a group of 13 nonprofits that provide homelessness and shelter services sent a letter to the King County Regional Homelessness Authority's Implementation Board this week. In that letter, the service providers state that it's already May, and many of them are still waiting for the King County Regional Homelessness Authority to approve their contracts and pay their invoices for 2023. Last year was the first year that the authority reviewed and approved contracts, and many of those contracts were issued late in 2022, uh, and uh, they're late again this year without any explanation or apparent improvement to the process. Now, the King County Regional Homelessness Authority oversees over 300 contracts worth over uh, $110 million per year. But so far this year, only half that number of contracts have been approved and only $15 million in invoices have been paid to service providers. Each invoice also has to be reviewed by the King County Regional Homelessness Authority before they pay it. In the meantime, these nonprofits are dipping into their cash reserves and some are even taking out loans to pay their staff and to keep their programs running. That means that they're on the hook for interest payments that can affect the amount of money that they're eventually able to to spend on actual programs for the homeless. And some of the smaller organized organizations are really on the brink of laying off their staff or closing their doors uh, completely because they can't, they can't tap loans. They don't have access to lines of credit and they can't, they don't have the same kind of reserves that larger organizations do. Now the list of organizations that signed the letter include Solid Ground, the Low-Income Housing Institute, Compass Housing Alliance, Chief Seattle Club, Queen Anne Helpline, Roots Young Adult Shelter, Youth Care, and the Refugee Women's Alliance, among several others. And they're asking the Implementation Board to do eight things, uh, and that includes pausing for one year the process of putting all of the agency's contracts out for bidding, for rebidding, Uh, Instead, clearly the agency, the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, obviously needs at least one more year to get its contract review process and invoice review process in shape before it adds an extra hurdle that will further delay the contract process for service providers. They're also asking that uh, the agency consolidate duplicate contracts to the same service providers for the same services, time periods, and funding sources, but that are just for different locations or different program names, and that this would lower the number of contracts that need to be reviewed and make the process more streamlined for everybody. 
And they're also asking the agency to automatically extend contracts through the end of the first quarter of the next year so that service providers don't have to cover five months of unpaid bills like they're doing right now. Uh, any differences between the previous year's contract and a new contract could be calculated when the new one is issued, uh, hopefully a little earlier than May of 2024, right? And they're asking the leadership of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority to make monthly reports to the implementation board on the progress of reviewing and approving contracts and to explain any delays. Um, they also want the uh, homelessness authority to pay out 75% of all invoices on a provisional basis while the invoices are under review and then the remaining 25% when the review is complete to help the cash flow of all these service providers who are uh, des desperately just kind of limping along, sometimes putting their programs completely on hold because they don't have the money to uh, to extend services to to homeless folks. And and bear in, bear in mind that, you know, historically, a lot of these service providers got some money from the city, some money from the state, uh, some money from uh, the county. And mm -hmm. a lot of that was consolidated under the homelessness authority. So a lot of their eggs for in terms of their income are in, in one basket now. And Especially the small ones. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And they're, they're ex as you said, they're exactly the folks who don't have the kind of reserves to be able to. Uh, you know, call on to pay out their staff while they wait for the homeless authority to get its act together. Yeah. And, you know, they're also asking for the homelessness authority to proactively contact the service providers if there's something wrong with their contract application. Apparently that's not happening. So as the as their uh, contract renewal is going through the review process at the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, it can get lost in the system and nobody reaches out to them with questions if there's something wrong with it. So it just kind of sits there and sits there and sits there. That's very, very bad service. And then they're they're asking for a couple of other things, but that's the main gist of it. Now, the implementation board for the King County Regional Homelessness Authority has 13 members on it, including two members each appointed by the mayor of Seattle, the King County Executive, the Seattle City Council, the King County Council, and the Sound Cities Association, which represents the other cities within King County. Uh, the final three members are people with lived experience of homelessness. The implementation board meets uh, once a month. And it's tasked with creating the five-year plan for the agency, crafting the budget, and reviewing the monthly financials, performing annual performance reviews, and overseeing the performance of the CEO, Mark Dones, and his leadership team. They're meant to be taking a hands-on approach to overseeing the agency versus the governing committee, which sits above them and is made up mostly of elected officials. Uh, the, the governing committee just oversees the performance of the implementation board, and then it reviews and approves their work on the five-year plan and the budget. So those are the layers of bureaucracy here, and the service providers are going to the implementation board, which is where you go if you think the CEO and his team are not getting the, the agency's house in order um, Dones claimed last year that the delays in uh, approving contracts were related to staffing issues and that it would take a few more months. But clearly, it's taking more than just a few more months to get everything up and running and problems are lingering. 
And Dones was heavily criticized last year for asking the Seattle City Council and the King County Council to double the amount of money in the agency's budget. He was also criticized earlier this year for estimating that the full five-year plan to address homelessness would cost $12 billion. So uh, I don't know what I don't know what the implementation board is going to do in response to these uh, requests by service providers who are saying, look, the if you want us to help you tackle homelessness, you got to get some stability in place for us in terms of uh, getting our contracts approved and our invoices paid by the by this new King County Regional Homelessness Authority. And that might mean you need to, uh, I don't know, replace Stones or maybe have somebody step in and help him get the agency into shape. So we'll see what the implementation board uh, does, if anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and what kind of timeline there might be for yeah. approving those contracts because they're still not approved. We could be looking at June or July. Yeah. We have and, no idea. And we could lose some of the smaller service providers completely. Meanwhile, the weather is uh, just about to flip into uh, summer heat dome mode and you know, people who are homeless are going to be the first ones feeling mm-hmm. a lot of those impacts. Yeah. yeah. And, and if, if you if, if, for instance, shelters don't have the kind of money to offer day refuge to homeless people where, you know, it's it's actually cool inside and they can go inside rather than sitting out on the sidewalk and baking, um, you know, that that's going to kill people. Yeah. Literally. Yep. All right. So last week we had uh, didn't have enough time to talk about the debt ceiling, which is a. Uh, Speaking of heat domes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy to hear people talk about the debt ceiling and then go, what is it really all about? Uh, and, you know, it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, back in January, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told Congress that the federal government had hit the debt ceiling and that the Treasury could take extraordinary measures to keep paying the federal government's bills. Uh, and they've been doing that, right? And this week she told Congress that come June 1st, the Treasury is going to run out of cash. Congress has to act to increase the debt limit. And, uh, and, and you may, you may wonder, well, why was the debt ceiling not an issue for Republicans when, when Trump was president? Yeah. Well, let's talk for a minute about what the debt limit is. Uh, it was instituted in the early 20th century as a way to allow the federal government to issue bonds without having to get a vote from Congress each time it needed to borrow money. Instead, Congress would vote on a debt ceiling and allow the federal government to issue bonds up to that amount. And then when they needed to issue more bonds above that amount, Congress would automatically approve an increase in the debt ceiling. And that's how it's been for decades, right? And it's never been a major issue until just recently when Republicans have adopted this idiotic idea that bringing the U.S. government to the edge of default and imperiling world economic mar- markets is a really good political strategy to try to rein in the Democrats from uh, spending money on things like, you know, social welfare issues or addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, The Biden administration has some options that they're exploring to try to raise the debt ceiling. 
They can uh, hope that some moderate Republicans will side with the Democrats to raise the debt ceiling, which appears to not likely happen. They can negotiate with the Republicans, which would mean accepting some future cuts to social programs in order to get at least a temporary increase in the debt ceiling. And uh, aren't, aren't you supposed to not negotiate with hostage takers? Well, that's been Biden's that's Biden's attitude right now is that he is not going to negotiate on future cuts to get a raise in the debt ceiling. Uh, the third option is to let the default happen and see how the Republicans respond. And this appears to be the least popular option of all, because it could lead to some very serious turmoil in the world financial markets. And then the fourth option is to use the argument that the 14th Amendment allows the a clause within the 14th Amendment allows the federal government to issue bonds even when Congress hasn't approved an increase in the debt ceiling. This is very controversial. Not everyone agrees that it can be done, but it might be the only way out for for uh, the Biden administration. Of course, in in, in, in fairness, that would almost certainly be litigated, and the Supreme Court is not yes. likely to side with the Biden administration. Yes, the Republicans are highly likely to file a lawsuit, and of course, the federal, the higher federal courts now are very conservative. So uh, it will be interesting to see if the if the Supreme Court forces the U.S. government into default. That could be what we're looking and, at. And and let's let's, let's hope talk, that doesn't happen. Yeah, let's talk about. The Republican strategy here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you hear some idiots like Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, well, if the U.S. defaults, it's no big deal. Nothing will happen. No, <laughs> we don't actually know what will happen because it's never uh-huh. happened before. But in all likelihood, it will crater the world economy, not just the U.S. economy, but the world economy. But the Republican calculation never- here. It's never happened before, but we've come close before. And when yes. we came close, it had some very serious impacts on the world economy that we don't yes. want to see again, even, particularly even, right now. Even though they reached a last-minute agreement. That was under Obama. It happened a couple of times. Um, but the calculation here is, well, the, the world economy will probably crater, but people will blame Biden for that, and that can get Trump elected president in 2024. That's a calculation, and it is incredibly yeah. cynical, and it is incredibly sociopathic because of the impact that it will have on, uh, you know, on people's daily lives. Um, it's uh, it, it's staggeringly cynical, uh, but that is that is the game that is at play right now. Exactly. Well, several people who have been uh, controversial of late uh are seeing some some uh time in front of the courts this week um, <laughs> are you talking <laughs> about george santos he's one of them <laughs> and donald yeah. Trump. yeah 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 i'll take yeah. santos briefly yeah have fun with santos yeah uh, he was actually the new republican representative george santos from from new york he was uh taken into custody on tuesday and indicted on 13 counts seven counts of wire fraud three counts of money laundering two counts of lying to the house of representative representatives on his financial disclosure forms and one count of theft of public funds uh as part of the indictments it now appears that he filed fraudulent a fraudulent claim for unemployment 
uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic while he was still working as a consultant. Now, while a lot of attention is being paid to the theft of unemployment uh, funds because he signed on to a Republican bill that would gut a lot of the oversight of unemployment claims, those actually those seven counts of wire fraud could land him in prison for over 100 years. There's, I think, a maximum of a 20 year sentence for wire fraud on each on each count. And he could end up serving those consecutively rather than uh, rather than all at the same time. Now, the Republican leadership of the House have continued to protect him in spite of calls from other New York Republicans in the House to expel him. Uh, some of the charges relate to Santos raising money for his political campaign, then putting that money into his own checking account and spending it on things like fancy designer clothing and paying off his credit card bills and other personal debts. And uh, no, do, do we know what name those credit cards that. were under? <laughs> you know what name those credit cards were under? He could no, be using other don't. names. Yeah, no, we don't, uh, because he has done that in the past. Now, he apparently filed for and collected about $25,000 in unemployment while he was collecting, also collecting about $120,000 salary while working as a consultant for Harbor City Capital. That's a, a Ponzi scheme that's been shut down by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, the day after Santos was indicted and released on $500,000 in bail, he signed a deal with, and I want to know who, who put up the bail, actually. <laughs> he, uh, he signed a deal with prosecutors in Brazil in which he admitted guilt for stealing clothing and writing bad checks when he was 19 years old. That was 15 years ago, but it appears that Santos was uh didn't learn from that he was never held accountable until now and uh he actually got off with a two thousand dollar fine and a slap on the wrist it uh and the dismissal of the criminal charges in that case but the charges he's facing in new york right now are a whole lot more serious and uh he's not going to be able to sign a deal that dismisses those i don't think no, he, he suffers from, you know, the Munchausen political syndrome. And, 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 you know, what we're learning from Kevin McCarthy and the leadership of the House of Representatives is it's now okay to do almost anything as long as you're a Republican. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, um, uh, the party of Donald Trump has attracted other grifters. It's not surprising. And George Santos is nothing if not a classic grifter. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about Trump's legal issues? Uh, well, before I get to Trump, I want to talk about Joseph Harding. He is a former uh, Florida state legislator and uh, the author of the Don't Say Gay Bill. That's his great claim to fame until this week when he was also uh, pled guilty to uh, uh, collecting uh, you know, several tens of thousands of dollars in COVID-19 relief money fraudulently. Uh, by, you know, setting up a basically a fake small business and then collecting the money. So, um, yeah, uh, this is, again, the party of grifters. And uh, uh-huh. uh, some of that stuff is starting to wind its way through the courts now. Now, Donald Trump had a very bad legal week. He is now officially, uh, according to a jury of his, quote unquote, peers, uh, he is officially a rapist. Um, and officially a, uh, you know, uh, he was also well, found. They didn't, there, there's been a lot of talk about how they didn't actually find that he had raped E. Jean, e. Jean Carroll, no, that he, he sexually he, abused her, but he, he it's a fine line. 
Yeah. He sexually assaulted her. It's a but fine I'm, line. I'm, I'm going to go with the, the broader term because, yeah. you know, honestly, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, so the former president of the United States is now officially a rapist. Um, and I should point which, out it, which, took, it, only something, took him, it only took him less than half a day to decide that. Yeah, the, the, it, the jury decided it very quickly. Very quickly. They, they thought they thought they were the jury would probably be out for several days on this. They weren't. It was, you know, very open and shut to this jury. Mm-hmm. So um, but it, I mean, it only took, a, you know, about seven years for any kind of accountability for the literally dozens of people who came forward during Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and say, yes, he harassed me. Yes, he molested me. Yes, he sexually assaulted me. There are a lot of different um uh, allegations of that out there, and I believe there's a couple more lawsuits winding their way through the courts on that topic also. Uh, uh, Mr. Trump has a problem with women. Uh, this should not be of any surprise. Remember the pink hats? <coughs> mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, remember the Hollywood Access tape? Um, and, you know, during his deposition in the Carroll trial, uh, Donald Trump was... Uh, to put it very politely, unrepentant uh, about his actions. Um, uh, yeah, his his deposition was a piece of work, uh, and very much insight into the into the the fact, the verifiable fact that he has not changed. Uh, he may be older, but he is definitely not wiser, um, and he is definitely just as contemptuous of other human beings. Uh, you know, who he sees basically as objects to be used. Um, and that includes his sex life, apparently. He, he, he really, he really should be in any rational democracy. He should be disqualified from running for office again, but apparently he's not because it's okay if you're a Republican. And not just for continuing to support the, uh, January 6th riot at the Capitol. Yes, which he went on at great length about during his alleged town hall this week that he did for CNN, which, you know, CNN basically set it up as a 60, 70 minute infomercial for Trump's campaign. Uh, you know, the, the moderator they had did her very best to push back against Trump, but of course he just talked over her. Um, and the audience was, you know, a hand picked, mostly Trump supporters. Apparently they were told it was okay to apply, but not to boo. So people who were appalled by Trump's lies, uh, which were pretty much nonstop during the course of the evening, um, really couldn't express that at all. Uh, but all you heard was people clapping and cheering, you know, with, with his various applause lines. So it was, it was a, a mess. And CNN is facing a lot of criticism for how they set that up. Shall we talk about a couple of decisions at the F, a couple of things that happened at the FDA this week? Um, yeah, I want to talk about that. Uh, before we get to that, uh, something we didn't get to last week, but uh, the CDC's uh, Rochelle Walensky, who is, a, who is their executive director and who tried to bring back a modicum of professionalism to the, the world's, you know, what used to be the world's foremost public health agency. Uh, she said she was resigning um, uh, this year. She's citing uh, the need for somebody else to come in to uh, manage the, the transition from a COVID emergency to uh, business as usual, which, again, is a, a, uh, 
and and of course the the official public emergency for the federal government ended this past week. So uh, the pandemic is officially over. Uh, if people die from COVID nineteen, it it's uh, it's not because there's a pandemic. It's because there's a um, um, uh, well a pandemic. But um, <laughs> but yeah. the uh, the the Official emergency over, which means all kinds of federal relief money is also ending or has ended at this point, um, which is unfortunate because, you know, the, again, there's the nobody gave the memo to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, which continues to mutate, which continues to spread, which continues to sicken people. At this point, most to of kill the about a thousand people a week in the yeah, United States. E- exactly. And most of the people that it is killing are people who are considered vulnerable, they're over 75 years of age, or they are, uh, you know, they have uh, uh, faulty immune systems from one or another disease or medication. And those people basically have been thrown under the bus because everybody else has been told, oh, go back to normal, don't mask, don't social distance, don't do any of that stuff. So mm-hmm. people who um, are uh, are vulnerable to the virus basically have a choice to, you know, continue to expose themselves and, and risk, uh, serious illness or dying, uh, or just, you know, live as hermits because, uh, the rest of society has decided that they're not valuable, basically. Yeah. I think we're out of time. So, yeah. So next week, same time, same bat channel. Yes. Sounds good. Will you be back from your undisclosed location, Mike? I don't know. I just. To get the duct tape loose enough to call in this morning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, duct tape is, has so many uses. <laughs>